In 05, we had a mortgage, a home equity line of credit, credit cards, car loan, uh, student loans. But we started saving more and we stopped going into more debt. And I got rid of the country club membership and I sold my watch and, you know, sort of divested myself of all of the silliness. Uh, at least it was silly for me. I want my freedom. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want an expensive country club membership or an expensive watch or I want to buy my freedom. You've got one life to live and I want to, I want to live it on my terms. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their current portfolio allocations. I'm Clark, here alongside my co-host, Jace, and this is episode number 107. On today's show, we have Rob. He's an author of the new book titled Retire Before Mom and Dad. He talks about his journey to financial success, including a a successful financial blog, He also talked about his successful career in law, eventually quitting his job as a partner at the law firm. So an interesting interview with him where we discussed some new ideas and financial concepts. Just as a quick review, on last week's show, we had Justin. He has a current net worth of about $4.5 million. He's invested primarily in real estate, but also has some experience in oil and gas. And he, too, was actually a corporate lawyer, but has since gone off on his own after just two years realizing that that wasn't for him. And he now has real estate and collects over $50,000 monthly in rental income. So a great interview last week with Justin. Before we get into today's show with Rob, just want to thank our sponsor again, Obsidian Capital, for supporting the show. Creating passive income is one of the quickest ways to create and establish wealth. At Obsidian Capital, their core philosophy is to enable qualified investors to create long-term wealth passively through strategic real estate investments. Their team of experienced real estate professionals identify stabilized and value-add multifamily real estate assets that will provide strong financial returns, a healthy risk profile, tax incentives, and additional benefits that come from investing in real estate. They pride themselves on a high level of integrity and have experience in acquiring and managing over $300 million in multifamily assets. Furthermore, their leadership has over 45 years of combined industry experience. View their website today to learn more about their streamlined investment process at www.obsidiancapitalco.com. Speaking of sponsorships, we have a couple spots opening up here at the beginning of the new year. So if you're interested in sponsoring the show, feel free to reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com, and we'd love to connect with you. Also, if you're interested in our multifamily opportunities, investing opportunities, feel free to reach out. We partner with a couple groups that have current deal opportunities, so feel free to reach out if you're if you're interested in those. But without any further delay, let's get right into today's interview with Rob. Rob, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of give a little bit of insight into your story and how you've arrived to where you are today? Sure, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Well, I you know I'm 52. I should start there. Grew up in Ohio and went to law school, college and law school, and then moved with my wife to Washington, D.C., practiced law for 25 years. Uh, Not quite as sexy as some might think uh, the practice of law is, but I did that for 25 years. And at one point, this is back in about 05, I, you know, was sort of living the lawyer lifestyle and realized that's not what I wanted. So I jettisoned the lawyer lifestyle, and I decided uh, that what I really wanted was freedom. And uh, that's what I wanted to buy. And so I started buying my freedom one dollar at a time. 
fortunately, my wife was already good with money, so <laughs> I didn't have to worry about her. I mean, she was really uh, way ahead of me on this. And, you know, kind of one thing led to another. We just were, you know, it was nothing fancy, you know, basic index fund investing, spending less than you make. You know, at one point I worked for the government and I, while I've certainly made a, a, a reasonable salary, it wasn't what some might think of when you think of a lawyer in Washington, D.C., but uh, it was more than enough. And then I started a blog, doughroller.net. Uh, this was in 07 to kind of write about it. And that sort of turned into a business. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to dive into details on any of this, but you know, you fast forward to 2018. I'd already retired from law uh, two years before that and sold doughroller.net and um, kind of retired again, I guess, the second time, right? Yeah. So I've retired, I've retired twice so far, I guess. Uh, although a month after that, Forbes called me and said, would you like to be a deputy editor? And I said, eh, why not? So I'm currently working at Forbes, but, you know, work from home on pretty much my own schedule. Uh, don't have to, but I do. And, uh, as I said, I sold the blog. And so I'd, I'd always wanted to write a book about, you know, basically how to do smart things with your money. And so I had, you know, having sold the blog, it gave me time to write retire before mom and dad. And that just came out a month ago. And now I'm talking to you guys. There's my life story. That's awesome. I want to I go back into your story a little bit. Before we do, I, I kind of want to have a little discussion about the word retirement and what that actually means. You mentioned you kind of retired twice. And I think we throw that term around a lot. You know, I'm retired, but now I'm pursuing something that's more of a passion or a passion project or whatever. How does that relate in your mind to, to retirement? You said you've retired twice. Would you consider a third retirement of when you quit writing for Forbes? Or how do you kind of think about that? It's a great question. And so here I think about it a couple of ways. So from a financial planning perspective, I view retirement as when as that point in time when you're living off of your investments. Now, you may have other sources of income, like if you're old enough, Social Security and a pension, but you're living off your investments. And I suppose some would say that's sort of a traditional notion of retirement. But it's important because what I, you know, when I quit, when I retired from law, I did not need to live off my investments because I had the website that was generating income. When I sold the website, I was going to have to live off my investments. I didn't know that I would have some, uh, some work opportunity at Forbes. And boy, I tell you, psychologically, I, I don't care how much you have relative to your expenses. It's a big shift to start spending down your nest egg. And I was starting to, I, I, it was a struggle, even though we could, you know, easily live off one and a half or 2% of our nest egg. You know, I'm 52. I mean, it's not, I'm not that old, I, you know, but psychologically that was not an easy transition. And, but in any event, that to me is sort of from a financial planning perspective, retirement, but, you know, with the gig economy and the internet and, the ability to have side hustles and all of this sort of thing. I think there's sort of a new kind of retirement that's arisen. It's more like a lifestyle retirement. And it's where, you know, you're in addition to maybe living off a portion of your nest egg, you're, you're also earning income, but you're doing it on your own terms. You know, in my case, you know, working for Forbes, I don't commute, you know, I work at home. I enjoy the work. I enjoy the people I work with. So traditionally, is that retirement? No, I'm not retired. Uh, but psychologically, I kind of am not only because of the lifestyle that it allows me to, to live, but also the knowledge that I can call it quits anytime I want to. 
I don't know. So that, that's how I kind of think about yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point you bring up. There's kind of like this psychological retirement that you've kind of gone through already and probably went through it initially even before you know you sold your website of yeah. kind of being retired. I'm fine. But you talk a little bit about that challenge of kind of converting your, your spending to living off your investments. And maybe you mind shedding some light on, on kind of what that the mechanics of that look like. And, you know, are you depositing, you know, X amount of dollars from your investments into your checking account every month? Or do you do it once a year? Or how do you kind of, you know, evaluate doing that and, and kind of getting yourself right. psychologically warmed up to that? Yeah. So before, so I don't have to spend my nest egg at the moment, right? Because of the work for Forbes and a few other things that I do. But before that came about, my plan was to more or less use the bucket strategy. And there's different ways you can implement it. But but the basic idea is I would probably hold in my mind, I was thinking two, maybe three years of expenses in basically cash. Uh, Might be in a savings account, could be in a short-term CD, could be in short-term bonds or money market. But uh, things that aren't subject to interest rate risk, right? I don't know how deep you want to dive into <laughs> bond duration and interest rate risk, but, you know, short, short term duration things like a savings account. And then probably another five years of expenses in maybe intermediate term bonds, uh, and then the rest in equities. So that's how I was thinking about my investments. And the idea was I could withstand a pretty extended bear market without drawing down my my equities, my equity investments. That's sort of the idea behind it. And so I was, yeah, I was going to have like a couple of years in cash in the savings account and I might move, you know, six months of it into a checking account and um, <laughs> hope it actually lasts six months. But, it, it, you know, so that was my plan. And that, that's how I was going to implement it. Again, it turned out that I haven't had to do that yet. But uh, w- when I do, that's I'll probably follow a similar strategy. Yeah, I think it's interesting, especially now because you have all these high interest savings accounts coming out, right? Like, I mean, I have a Goldman account that pays two percent, right? So- <laughs> I, I laugh that we, but yes, I guess that by today's standards, that is a high interest savings account. I mean, to me, it is. (laughs) No, no, I know. But the funny thing is, so I've got this document in my office and I'm actually trying to find it. But it is a a six month certificate of deposit that I owned in 1982. So it was a six month CD was paying over 16 percent interest. Oh, wow. Crap. So I have sort of a different perspective when it comes to to high interest. I remember the good days. Well, actually, those were actually not good days, but. Well, interest was Here also charged on the houses at double digits, and right, right, right. That's how they were able to pay those rates. We had stagflation, as they called it back then. Yep. <laughs> so, Rob, let's dive into your as much as you're comfortable sharing here your asset allocation. I know you said it's mostly in, in index funds, but how much do you hold in index and mutual funds versus bonds, and and maybe domestic versus international? So, yeah. Um, and let me pull up some software. Or sure percentage wise, I guess. So basically, my allocation is 70, 30 stocks to bonds. I'm 52. As I mentioned, you know, earlier, I, I, I at one point I was probably 90, 10. Uh, and then I went more to 80, 20. And then after I sold Doe Roller, it just didn't seem to need to, to take on that volatility. And, you know, the other thing is the 30 percent that are cash and bonds we could live off for a really long time. So it, I think, you know, a 70-30 is, is, I think, safe enough for us. 
So right now, and this really isn't by design, it's, it's moved, you know, out, you know, how you have to rebalance every now and again, and I'm probably in, in need of rebalancing, but roughly 50% of the portfolio is in U.S. stocks, which is probably a little more than I should have, particularly given the relative valuations of U.S. indexes versus foreign. Uh, so, but in any event, it's about 50% stock, U.S. stocks, and then about 25%, well, 20, that's called 20% international stocks. And then my bond portfolio is not all that creative. It's mainly about five or 6% in cash. And then most of it just in a total bond uh, fund. Really, I think the best way to allocate a bond fund would be to put half of your bonds in tips and the other half in some sort of, you know, Vanguard or other total bond index fund. And I, you know, I'm happy to go into the details yeah. of why, but. In any event, that's sort of my allocation. And then on terms of international stocks, so normally I want about 10% uh, in emerging markets. And that's actually lower right now. It's about 5%. So I need to go in and rebalance that. Yeah, awesome. I appreciate you sharing. And then is that all in index funds? Any actively managed funds? or So no actively managed funds. 85% is in index funds and 15% is actually in individual stocks. Oh, wow. I know that's probably... That's probably a, a big no-no to a lot of. No, folks. it's interesting. We, we hear it less and less. I mean, but there are some people that still. I think we had. Jace, correct me if I'm wrong. I think we had someone with like two hundred thousand in Facebook stock. Yeah, yeah, they bought when it was super low, and they've just held it there. I think another couple had Apple. You know, some of these Fang stocks, some of these people had bought a long time ago, and they've they've appreciated well, and they've just kept them. But it, it's an interesting story, just because I think you see much more, especially in the personal finance community, a push towards index funds. But there are still people that hold individual stocks and, you know, a ton of platforms yeah. like Motif oh. and stuff have made it fairly easy to buy an individual stock and trade an individual stock and stuff. compared right. to Robinhood. Yeah, Robinhood compared to the, the olden days and cheaper. You know, it's a lot cheaper to trade. Well, I, my so my theory on that, I own, I'll tell you what I own. I own Apple. I own uh, Citibank, U.S. Bank, a little bit of Wells Fargo and Berkshire Hathaway. My theory. Cla- class on, A. <laughs> uh, yeah, about 40 Class A. <laughs> no, all B shares, all B shares. And I bought that a long time ago because I wanted to go to the, the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. So I've, I've gone twice, which is a lot of fun. Oh, nice. But, you know, they're basically value stocks. I mean, Apple and Berkshire are probably borderline now. Although when I bought them, certainly when I bought Apple, it would have probably been classed as a value stock at the time. But, you know, I think I have the temperament for it. I'm very much, I buy it and I just Unless I'm going to give shares to charity, which my wife and I do regularly, I just don't sell. Unless, you know, it's either for charity or occasionally for a tax reason. And I think it actually dampens my volatility uh, a bit, and and I enjoy it. So you know, I don't know that it's for everyone. I don't have any particular brilliant strategy. I'm looking for good companies at reasonable prices. And so just jumping back to your allocation here, 70% stocks, 30% bonds, roughly, do you kind of see yourself going that way in the future? Or as you get older, you think you'll go heavier towards bonds? Or what's your take there? Yeah, I don't really see going heavier towards bonds, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. I know know that it's sort of the general thing you do. And when you look at, for example, at a target date retirement fund, uh, you know, a 2020 fund, they're going to be around 50-50, give or take. But the way I look at it is equities are going to perform best over the long term, number one. Yeah, they're probably valued richly at the moment, although based on current interest rates, I'd say they're not. But when interest rates go up even to, you know, four or five percent, stocks are going to come down quick. 
but bonds are overvalued or, you know, they're in a bond bubble as well. So you're kind of left with short term bonds and the yield is terrible. So, right. And, and the 30% that I have in stock and cash and bonds, like I said, you know, we could live for um, probably 20 years on it. So it, you know, it seems to me that it's really not that risky of a portfolio. Mm -hmm. And then anything in real estate, obviously your primary residence. No, I did. I, with a good friend, I bought, we bought five HUD properties back beginning in 05 and they did extremely well. But over time, we sold three of them. And then last year, I sold him the last two. Oh. So, uh, and because they're in Ohio, which where he is, he's doing all the work. So it just kind of made sense. Yeah. And, uh, but they, they, they weren't in terms of like overall portfolio, they weren't big numbers. I mean, we were buying homes for, Anywhere from fifty to a hundred thousand dollars, right? In in Ohio, HUD foreclosures, but they did extremely well. It was a, it was a really good investment and a lot of fun. But yeah, now it's just our primary residence. Awesome, awesome. Well, good for you, and congrats again on your success. So, in in two thousand five, Rob, you kind of had this realization that okay, I you know I want to have some more freedom. And in two thousand seven, you started your financial blog. So, yeah. at at that point. Where were you at financially in, in the sense of your understanding? And was that kind of something that you were really interested in all along? Or did all of a sudden, you know, you hit a spark of curiosity and started focusing on it a lot more? Or were you already interested at that point? Well, I'd been interested in, and, and had been investing since 93. For the most part, it was 401k and, and some outside of a 401k. But I was spending a lot of money, too, you know, and so relative to our income, we hadn't saved a lot and I was nowhere near retiring. I mean, I was basically heading down a, a traditional path of work until I'm 65 or 70. And not only that, but have to work in law to generate the kind of income to support the lifestyle. And I'd made partner at a big firm. And then two years later, I think it was, there was about a five year period. This didn't happen overnight, but you know, I made partner and and after I made partner, it took all the fun out of it. It was like trying to make partner was the fun. <laughs> and it was like I got to the – it's like if you've ever been to like Mount Rushmore, you get there and you're like, okay, that's nice. Uh, all right, kids, you ready to go? Right. Um, what are we going to do? Yeah. And so I got there and literally two years later I left and I went – I took a huge pay cut, went in-house. Then I went to the government. But during this time, I just said, you know, I, I want my freedom. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want an expensive – you know, country club membership or an expensive watch or, you know, I want, I want to buy my freedom. You've got one life to live and I want to, I want to live it on my terms. So, you know, that kind of came to a head in 05. It was June. I actually wrote, I've still got the piece of paper. I wrote down a piece of paper. I said, I'm going to be totally debt free seven years from now in 2012. And this is again, this is still two years before I started the blog. And, you know, that's what we just started to focus on. You know, we didn't become super savers overnight. It wasn't like we just, you know, immediately started saving, you know, seventy percent of our income or some something crazy that you hear about. Uh, but we started saving more, and we stopped going into more debt. And I got rid of the country club membership, and I sold my watch, and you know, sort of divested myself of all of the silliness. Uh, at least it was silly for me. And then, you know, then that led to the personal finance blog, and then that generated more income that helped us pay off our debt. I mean. In 05, we had a mortgage, a home equity line of credit, credit cards, car loan, uh, student loans. So, you know, it wasn't, we weren't like heading to bankruptcy, but we also weren't heading to financial freedom either. Right. 
Yeah. And what did your wife think of all this? Was she on board with you quitting a partner at a law firm? So I've got the I got the greatest wife in the world. We just celebrated 31 years. Oh, congrats. And it's a great question because I think some folks would be, you know, you, you can kind of define yourself, your status in life by a job like being a partner at a big firm, right? And I would, uh, I'd be lying well, if I and, said that. And there, the security in a sense, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I, and I would be lying if I said there wasn't a part of me that's, that thought to myself, what in the heck am I doing giving this up? But my wife didn't care a bit. She didn't care a bit about that. I mean, she wanted, you know, she knew I would, I would provide for the family and I was going to have a job. I might not make as much, but like I took a a really big pay cut and she didn't bat an eye. Mm. It's just not, you know, she's just, you know, I'm pretty fortunate that way. She, she was, yeah, she was definitely ahead of me on this one. And so it seems like, you know, we sent over a book and I've, I've had a chance to look through it. It's really well done, organized, really well written. Um, so congrats there again. And it kind of seems like the message is what you just shared with us that, some of the most, you know, the most important thing you can spend your money on is is buying financial freedom. Is that the main message of the book or what are maybe the top couple messages that you intended to get across when you wrote this? So, I, you know, I think my main message is that achieving, uh, you know, a certain level of financial freedom is one very attainable for the vast majority of people. It's not as hard as we think it is. But to do it, you just have to know a few things, know a few strategies and be willing to experiment a bit. And I mean, I, again, I can go into detail on all of this. You know, I think so often we think, okay, I, I you know, I'm, I'm a teacher, I'm a plumber, um, uh, I work at the gas company, which is, which is where my parents worked. I'm making whatever, you know, uh, middle income, and there's just no way I, you know, I'm just destined to continue doing this until I'm 70. And I think that just doesn't have to be your reality. And to get, I think when you, you know, when you look at two different families, say one's saving 20% of their income and doing, you know, obviously saving a lot of money and investing it wisely and doing very well and moving towards financial freedom, you can compare them to another family, maybe making the same income, but living paycheck to paycheck. The difference in their lifestyles is just not that great. It seems like it might be, but the differences aren't really that great. You know, one family's driving a car for 15 years instead of five, right? I mean, one family's going out to eat once or twice a week instead of four or five times. I mean, it's not dramatic. And that's why I think you can sometimes be surprised when you hear that so-and-so has a lot of money, right? And that's happened to me where I've heard, mm. you know, of someone I know and I, and I, and I learned what they've got two million bucks in the bank. You're, I had no idea. <laughs> right. Right. But it was because the differences aren't as great as we make them out to be. Anyway, so the, the the message basically was you can do this and here is specifically what you need to know and the strategies that you need to follow to do it. So that was the basic idea. By the way, you know, I called it retire before mom and dad, not because I'm trying to push early retirement, although in the book, I certainly go through the math behind early retirement and you can use what's in there to retire early if that's what you want to do. But honestly, I was trying to reach the 20 year olds. And the folks just starting out. And so that's why I sort of positioned it that way. But frankly, if you're 40 or 50 and you know you're behind, the same, it's all the same strategy. It really doesn't really matter the age. But I was really trying to get, I like to say I was trying to put Dave Ramsey out of business was my goal. <laughs> um, right. Cause he gets the 35 year old or 40 year old who's just made a complete mess of things and needs to start with baby step number one. Right. Yep. And so my goal was to get them when they're just starting out so that they never get to that point and have to go through Dave's baby steps. 
I, I don't think Dave really needs to fear that. I think he's probably fine. But <laughs> yeah, it's just like he <laughs> preaches no credit cards, and I don't think he has to fear that everybody's going to get rid of credit cards, and we're going to have, you know, <laughs> yeah, a, a massive. He's probably not going to put Chase Bank out of business, but no, no, yeah. No. Yeah. So let's let's get into a little bit of the details of the book. You've got the book broken up into parts. And yeah. and your first part is called your superpower. Maybe just yep. take a couple minutes to to dive into a couple key points from those chapters that that revolve around part win and being your superpower. Right. So I I I I get to meet a lot of young people and 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 middle-aged and older people too who are just getting started with personal finance. And I love to ask them this question. I say, "Okay, Imagine you save, you, you make 50 grand a year and you're never going to get a raise. That's what you're going to make your whole life. And you can only save 5%, about a little over 200 bucks a month. And you're going to earn an average return. And you do that from, say, when you get out of college till you're, you know, 45 years later, you retire at 67. How much will you have? You guys want to take a guess? 208 bucks a month. I've put you on the spot. The thing what percent is, you said? Well, I, I used the average return of a 70-30 portfolio, according to Vanguard, which is 9.3%. And that's not adjusting for inflation yet. We get to that later. But Starting at what age, you said? Yeah, say when you're out of college, 22, and you work till you're 67. 208 bucks a month. How much will you have? So 2,500 bucks a year times 9%. Oh, geez, I don't know. At least a few million. 1.7. Okay. No, that's a good guess. I mean, most of the guesses I get are somewhere between 100 and 500,000. Clark's just and putting I think, a bigger return in. <laughs> <laughs> it is fun to play with the numbers. Of course, you got to adjust for inflation. But the, oh, yeah. the, the thing is, is people don't understand, and myself included, the power of compounding. Our minds just don't naturally grasp it. There were times when I'm writing the book and I'd put the number into the calculator and I'd get the result and I'd think, oh, that's not right. And I have to recalculate it. Over time, the numbers just get ginormous. And in the book, what I try to do is say, look, this p- power, of, this compounding, I call it the superpower, but it's really just a question of how much you invest at what, at what after fee return you get. You got to factor in fees and for how long. And, you know, you can use this to really make some important decisions. And, you know, I talk, for example, in that, you know, going from $208 a month, what if you just round down to 200 it costs you a couple hundred grand over a lifetime. What if you round up to 225? Well, you make a couple hundred grand. Hmm. And, you know, the, the point is these small differences multiplied over time, you know, make a huge difference in your wealth. It, you know, you, you think about the returns and you go from 9.3 and instead of investing on your own, you hire an advisor. And so now you're earning 8.3 because they take 1% of your assets under management. Right. I mean, that is a ginormous difference. You're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars over a lifetime. So the part, the, the, the point of part one of the book is to really explain not just the theory behind compounding returns, but how it, how it, how you should think about it at a practical level in making day to day and month to month decisions. Cause you, you got to have that superpower. You take that away, you're never going to make it. Right. It kind of reminds me a little bit. I just started reading it. Um, the slide edge, the book, the slide edge by Jeff Olson. And, and basically the premise is, you know, you do a little bit every day. Right. And once it, it compounding, it's a big effect. Right. Ten pages a day doesn't make a difference. You're not going to finish a book. You may not even read a chapter, half a chapter, whatever. Right. But you do it every day for a year and pretty soon you've read 10, 12, 15 books. And so I it, think it's yeah. kind of a similar topic here. Right. You you don't go out to eat two days a week. Yeah, sure. In the short term, it's it's 20 bucks, right? It doesn't make a big difference. But then you save it and invest it and you run your calculations. And then pretty soon it's a lot of money. 
Well, it, it does apply to a lot of different things, including fitness, right? But think about your 10-page-a-day analogy. I mean, if you really wanted to compare that to c- compounding, what would happen over time is not only would you continue to read 10 pages a day, but the 10 pages you read the day before would start reading for you, right? right? And the 10 pages the day before that would start reading for you because that's effectively compounding. Every dollar you start to invest, right. it's like an employee that you you can send out and they work for you and they bring in money every day for you. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, but it does apply to to a lot of areas of our life. Absolutely. Yeah, just that the little things add up. And so, so let's maybe that's a good segue to the second part, financial freedom. I, I like chapter nine. You call how much should you save, and and in that you have kind of a a ten percent, a fifteen percent, and a twenty percent. I didn't know that yeah. Elizabeth Warren, by the way, had written a financial book. I didn't know that. Yeah. But wh- I mean, what do you? What is it? And I think that's kind of the answer we all ask: is how much do I need? A Right. And then how much does it take to get there? And and people right. kind of hear the 4% rule, right? 4% of whatever you have, maybe that's your safe withdrawal rate. But what have you found or what have you saved throughout your life? Which of those is, what do you think, 10, 15, 20%? <laughs> right. Well, so the point of that chapter was one. So these are rules of thumb that we've probably already heard many times, 10 or 15 or 20%. So the the first point was we shouldn't group those together. They're vastly different. And I walk through the numbers, saving 10% of, say, a $50,000 income versus saving 15 or 20. The end result when you go out 10, 20, 30, 40 years is night and day. I mean, it's, you're talking millions of dollars of difference. Right. right? And, and so that, that was sort of the first point. And then, then the second one is, look, you can translate your savings rate into, and it kind of goes from part two into part three of the book, but you can figure out. As, as a rough estimate, how long it will take you to save 25 times your annual expenses based on your savings rate? What percentage of your income are you saving? And and the point I was trying to get at is, look, if you want to pick a rule of thumb just to start out and get going, that's fine. But do it with the full knowledge of the impact it's going to have on your journey to financial freedom. So, for example, you know, if you save 20 percent, you're looking at about 30 years depending exactly on your returns, to get to 25 times your expenses. Now, if you're 22, you know, that puts you in your early 50s. Uh, it's a long way away when you're 22. But at the same time, how many people are able to retire in their early 50s? Not very many. And, you know, you can always ratchet it up to 30% if you want to retire even earlier or achieve financial independence, independence even earlier. You know, you may con- decide to continue working like I have. Um, but you do so on your own terms. So I, I didn't want to just th- throw out a rule of thumb and say, okay, everyone should save X percent. That to me is just silly. And the other thing is, you know, it's going to vary over time. And to your question, you know, when we first started out, of course, we had school loans and everything. We were saving very little. I don't know what the percentage was, but it was certainly single digits. Um, you know, by the time I'd made that decision in 05, you know, we were probably somewhere in the 10 to 15 percent range. Uh, 20 or more if you factor in paying extra on our debt, right? Uh, but once, you know, the website started making money, we didn't spend any of that. So, you know, you fast forward to when I sold Dole Roller and we were probably saving 75% of our income. Uh, but by that point, we'd paid off all our debt. So we didn't have debt payments. And, you know, it, it, it gets easier over time, right. Right. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And as your income grows, you can you can save more. You know, Rob, one thing I'm noticing in in my personal life and some of the people that we interview is you start saving and you have cash and 
you know, maybe the thought is, hey, I'm going to buy a house or I'm going to save up for a car or I'm going to save up to buy an investment property. And I think sometimes in these calculations, we say, you know, hey, I'm going to earn, you know, whatever percent, right? Eight, 10, 12, five, whatever it is. And I'm going to earn it all the time. But a lot of the time, we're not necessarily investing our money, right? We might be holding it for the right opportunity. So that's true. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know the question. I'm just kind of sharing the thought that I wonder if, if sometimes, you know, we always say, oh, it's going to be invested at 8% all the time, but maybe that's not factually accurate or maybe it evens out over time. I'm opening that up, Chase, for you too. Well, I was going to say, when, you, when you're looking at sort of a planning perspective, you throw in some kind of assumed return, right? So in the book, I use 9.3 because that's basically been the return of a 70-30 portfolio for the last 100 years. For inflation, I use 3%, same reason. But I mean, inflation is lower than that now. It's been higher than that many times, right? And the other thing is, is that returns, as, as Warren Buffett says, are lumpy. I mean, even if you do average whatever, 7%, let's say, over some period of time, that's probably going to include years when you gain 20 and when you lose 20. Sure. And if you're in the accumulation phase, that's really important. I mean, the best thing that could happen to someone right now in their 20s or 30s or even 40s is that we hit a, a big, big bear market, right? Because assuming they stick to their plan and assuming they continue to you know, invest in their 401k, their IRA and taxable accounts, whatever they're doing, they're going to be buying shares of mutual funds or stocks or whatever they've got at lower and lower and lower prices. And it's not fun during those times because, you know, not only is the market down, but there are usually other bad things happening, right? The market doesn't go down in isolation. In 08, it was the housing crisis and the banks were, we were afraid were failing. And some, of course, Lehman Brothers, I mean, some did. And so there were a lot of bad things happening. People were losing their jobs and it's, it's a very scary time. But if you can hold on and keep doing and following your plan, you're buying in at a very low price. And long term, it's going to result in a lot more wealth uh, for you. Now, it's a different picture for those already retired living off their nest egg. They've got to deal with it in a different way. But for those accumulating right now, a bear market, which one is coming. I don't know when, but it's going to come. Right. Uh, you know, you, that'll, that'll be the time for you to really kick it in and, and, be, and be investing. So not a fun time. But a very important time. And in fact, the downturn in the market for, oh, what, oh, seven, oh, nine helped me build a tremendous amount of wealth when you factor that in and then the, the following years of, of good, good returns. So, yeah. Hey, you, you lead into a good segue. I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about and, and it kind of relates to part three of your book, which is buying your freedom. You've, you were an attorney. You had a career as an attorney. You invested in and had some successful real estate exits, and you also had a small business that you were able to to sell. If somebody were starting out, which kind of path would you recommend for somebody to get going to essentially buy that financial freedom? Right. So in the book, I stick with basic index fund investing, right? And I think that is sort of the primary way for most people, myself included. Uh, I think other forms of investing are certainly worth considering. I think real estate is an excellent investment, but you've got to be careful. You shouldn't compare investing, say, in an index fund with owning real estate. It's just they're night and day. First of all, with most real estate, you're probably going to have leverage and you're either going to pay someone to manage it for you, which is expensive, or you're going to manage it yourself, which is a job, right? 
and your, your, you know, your potential liability is different. Yes, you can form an LLC. There's issues there in terms of financing. You can obviously get insurance. Um, but, but there are a lot of different things to consider and, uh, it, it can be a great way to achieve financial independence uh, faster, but you ought not minimize both the work that goes into it and, you know, the potential risk. I mean, you're dealing with people and you're in a home, you know, you might be evicting people at some time. They might do damage to the property. I mean, I'm not trying to discourage people from owning real estate. It's just, you need to do it with eyes wide open, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and in terms of the business side, I mean, personally, building an online business was life changing for me. And, you know, I started in 07. I was still a full time lawyer. I was up at 5 a.m. seven days a week for a couple of years, literally every day, working on the website, working on it on the subway to work at lunch on the way home. Uh, and, and frankly, I look back on it and I'm not even sure what motivated me to do that because it kind of sounds insane to me right now. But. I loved doing it. And the thing I liked about it was there was no cash investment. It wasn't like I plunked a bunch of money down. Uh, it cost 10 bucks to get a domain name. WordPress is free. Uh, you have some hosting. I got hosting for like four bucks a month. There was virtually no capital invested at all. It was just my time, which is perhaps the most important capital of all, but I was willing to, 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 to burn it. So, um, <laughs> It really was life changing in so many ways. The people I've met, the conferences I go to now, the conferences I speak at, you know, it's just been it's been a remarkable journey. And, yeah, I think it's an excellent way to pursue financial independence. But it's kind of like real estate. You kind of got to go into it eyes wide open. This it's definitely not a get rich quick way to go. It's a it's a work your butt off, get rich slow way to go. Totally. One chapter you've got in the book is the number one freedom fund killer. And I just want to kind yeah. of talk about that. You go into the math of, and, and just for people that the, the thing he talks about is, is cars and, and the math is, is astounding looking at what the opportunity cost is in, in buying a car every so often. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what you've decided and kind of what you shared with us before the show about how you're sure. thinking about that and just thinking about cars in general in this country and around the world? Yeah. So, you know, when I was younger, I didn't give this any thought at all. Of course, we have, you know, my wife and I, we have two cars. That's what people do. Of course, we're going to have two cars. And we borrowed to buy them and, you know, and didn't really give much thought about it. Didn't give much thought about where we lived in relation to my work. So we moved to a suburb of Washington, D.C. And I spent an hour plus commuting to work in a car every day, you know, each way. Looking back on it, it was pretty stupid, but that's what I did. And when I started looking at the numbers, it was amazing to me the opportunity cost you lose for every car you own. Now, in the book, you know, I recognize everyone's different. Some people need a car. The, the book, I'm not here to tell people they shouldn't have a car. And we have a car. We have one car now. So I'm not here to tell people, you know, everyone should sell their car. But uh, in the book, what I do is I look at the difference between, say, owning a car for five years and selling it and getting a new one versus owning it for 10 years before you get a new one versus owning it for 15 years. And, you know, when you look at the numbers over a lifetime, I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands and in many cases, millions of dollars of opportunity costs, either saved or lost, depending on the choices you make. And, you know, when you take that cost of a car and you multiply it by two for a family or even three, uh, you know, it, it just becomes mind numbing, the, the difference. And in the book, I don't even factor in insurance and maintenance and you know, it was just looking at the price of a car. So the point of that is to 
part of the point of that is to get people to think outside the box. I really stress thinking outside of the box, asking what if questions. Well, what if I got rid of my car, right? And some people are going to be immediately, you know, no way. But I really try to press into that and say, well, don't dismiss it right away. At least toy with the idea. And, you know, at the end of the day, folks may still decide to keep their car. Then that's fine. I'm not, you know, here to say that's good or bad. But the amount of money you can save and if invested, make is just extraordinary. So, yeah, I had a car that I leased through my business, not something I would recommend to my worst enemy. And, um, uh, the lease was up and I got rid of it. It's been, it's only been two months. So I can't pretend like I've gone 10 years without a car, but, uh, you know, my wife has a car and one of the deals we made was she's always got first dibs on the car. And what I do is I bike a lot of places. So I bike to the gym. I bike today to a coffee shop to meet another blogger. Um, I, if I want to get on the Metro, I bike to the Metro station and I love it. I, again, people might live in different areas of the country where that's just not feasible. I get it. But if you can go from two cars to one or one car to none, or the longer you can keep your cars, um, the, the money you can save and then invest is just extraordinary. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, Jace touched it on a little bit. I just want to hit it again of, of how much you dedicate to, to writing the blog, waking up at 5 a.m., working on the subway, working at work. You know, I think it's really admirable or admirable to, to put in that much time and, and dedication, right? Year after year, you did it for what, 10 years? Yeah, it's a, it must be a personality thing because here I am, I could retire, but I'm still doing stuff. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you think retirement's great, but then you still need a purpose in life, right? And for some people, the purpose might be, you know, fishing and golf. And that's great if that's what, you know, makes you happy. For me, it's just continuing to do this sort of stuff because I enjoy it. At least now, you know, it could change later. But yeah, I guess I'm kind of driven in that way. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, hey, Rob, we appreciate you taking the time. I think we've taken enough of yours, so appreciate you coming on. Where can people get the book and, and find out more about you? So probably the best place is just to go to retirebeforemomanddad.com. Um, they can reach out to me at rob at retirebeforemomanddad.com. On the website, you can pretty much buy the book anywhere, but it'll show you there on the homepage. And would love to hear what people think about the book and happy to respond to any emails folks want to send me. Awesome. And we think it's great. We're taking a look through. We'll finish reading it here, but really well done. And, and congrats again on your success in the book. And, and thanks for taking the time tonight. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.